thinking this morning, kind of going through the years, and Diane and I lived in North Carolina longer than any place ever in our life. So this is home. And leaving home is difficult to do. But I'm so honored to be here this morning. So thankful for the opportunity to be here. So blessed that you thought to invite me and I can have a part in this. We have dearly missed you. And what has made North Carolina our home is our family here. And you have been our family. You remain our family. It's been difficult to make a multitude of adjustments. Moving to a new home, moving to a new state, moving halfway across the country, leaving the place that's been home for over 30 years, leaving your church, retiring. It just, I, I start getting depressed when I think about it all, you know. <laughs> but just as you had supported us and encouraged us for those many years I was here, that has continued and the phone calls we've received, the cards we've gotten in the mail, they have lifted us up and encouraged us and made our transition so much better. And you are still being a blessing to us and such a blessing to be here and to see your faithfulness to the Lord more than anything else. You're here serving Him. For it is He that deserves all of our love and all of our faithfulness and service and dedication. And I am blessed to see that you remain faithful. You're serving Him. I am blessed to be here and uh, bring my regards to Pastor David, Pastor Travis, and Pastor Jim, and to all the deacons, many of whom served multiple terms during my tenure here. Thankful for Pastor Paul as he's helped you through this time. Uh, most of all, I'm thankful for your faithfulness and your love, your support, your understanding for us and uh, I trust and pray that you will give Pastor David everything you gave us. And if you do that, and I know you will, he'll be fine, and the family will be fine, Melody will be fine, and, and the church will be fine. And uh, you are, as a group, finest people we've ever been around in our life. God bless you, each one. Unfortunately... We will not be able to stay long at the dinner. I really wish I could hang around and just talk to all of you for a long time. Uh, we've got to be on a plane at 2.30. For some reason, Southwest decided to send us back to Houston through Denver. Uh, the only way we can get to Houston today is through Denver, and it's a longer trip. And I uh, have to be back at my new job teaching Bible and history and Geography and economics, uh, Christian school, which the Lord has blessed me with. And, you know, I, I teach all those things, but what I really do is I just sneak in a sermon, you know, every little bit, you know. So I just have a new congregation. 
But that's been a blessing. But we're not, we're going to have to, you know, eat quick and run. And I, I wish that weren't the case, but it is. And uh, if we could have possibly been here two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whatever it was, it was scheduled. I'd have had Monday to go back, but uh, that's not the case today. So if I do not get a chance to talk to each and every one of you for a moment or two, please forgive me. I will do my best to do that. Uh, it might be a quick conversation, but uh, you are in our hearts and uh, on our minds all the time. <clears throat> I bring you greetings also from my daughter Brittany, her husband Peter, and the kids, long-time members here at FBC. And... Uh, we, we love them and appreciate them. I know you do too. I just want to say hello for them. Uh, we have so many friends here as well. Well, I've preached at ordinations, but I've never preached at an installation. And I don't know exactly why. I thought, Lord, what, what in the world am I going to say? I could think of a lot of things I would like to say. But my job here is to preach God's Word and see what it says. And where where would I go? What would that be? And, and God put this particular text on my heart. And uh, I trust that it will be helpful. I urge you to be patient with me. The time we get finished, it will look a whole lot different than the way it starts. So don't draw any conclusions too quickly. What a joy it is to stand behind this pulpit. It feels like a just another Sunday, you know. Boy, I'm, I was blessed by the music this morning, brother. And the musicians. Best music I've heard since I left here. <laughs> that was a joy. Thankful for Brother Todd and his work and all those who, in the band and all the rest as well. Well, I want to... take you to a little antidote that's a favorite of mine. I'm sure I've shared it with you sometime or another over 29 years or so I was here. I'm sure you've forgotten it because it had to have been a long time ago if I did. But it's worth repeating. And it bears on my subject and it'll help us understand where we're going this morning. It's uh, an old fable that it was published many, many years ago in the Daily Bread. I've saved it ever since. Don't know who wrote it, don't know where it came from. But it goes like this. An elderly man, many, many years ago, long before automobiles, modern transportation, was making a trip. And on this trip, he had a young boy and a donkey. (coughs) He traveled down the road, leading the donkey and he and the young boy walking. They came to a town. As they passed through that small town, the townspeople observed and said, Man, that old man's foolish. Here he is leading that donkey when he could be riding. Well, the, the old man heard and said, Well, okay. Climbed on the, the donkey's back. Down the road they went to the next town. They came to the next village. And the people said to the old man, Why, you're cruel to make that young boy walk while you enjoy the ride. So the old man got off the donkey and put the young boy on the donkey's back, and down the road he went to the next town. At the third village, sure enough, 
The people observed what was happening, and they criticized the child, the young boy, and said, why, you're lazy making the old man walk while you're sitting on the donkey. Well, the old man thought for a minute, well, I do. So he clumb on the donkey with the boy. Now they're both on the donkey. Down the road they go to the fourth village. Enter into that village. Sure enough, people along the street begin to look and they begin to comment. And they said, my, my, isn't that cruel? Both that old man and that boy sitting on that poor little donkey. Frustrated, the old man was last seen going down the road carrying the donkey. I like that antidote really well because I must confess this morning I've carried more than my share of donkeys. I suspect you have to. Generally, carrying donkeys is not what you want to do. You see, critics and criticism, well, They abound. Yet, the reality is, each and every one of us are critics. We give criticism and we have to receive criticism. It's part of life. Now, constructive criticism, given in the right way, is a really good thing. And it's a very powerful tool to bring blessing and benefit. Criticism, on the other hand, that is not constructive, well, it's a trivial thing for the most part, as we're going to see as we move through this text. But it can really produce a lot of unproductive donkey business and sore backs. Especially, Brother David, for pastors. (laughs) I know you understand that. My first church, I was totally unprepared for all the expectations that people had. I suddenly realized that what I was trained to do in seminary really wasn't the real world. I had to learn. I had to adapt. Sometimes I didn't appreciate what people said and what they thought very much. But much of it in the long run I realized I needed to hear. We all have an obligation, responsibility to evaluate other people in our lives, to give them constructive help, criticism, which is just as important as putting your arm around their shoulder and encouraging them without offering any evaluation of what they're doing. The challenge for pastors is to carefully walk the line between criticism that's just trivial and criticism that's really constructive. And the challenge for congregations is to provide constructive criticism, as they should, when it is needed in the right way. But I'll tell you, neither of what I just described is easy. Receiving or giving. So it's very, very important that we maintain the right perspective on the pastoral office. 
It's important for pastors to have the right perspective. And I've often preached this text in pastors' groups. It's important for pastors to keep the right perspective on what they've been called to do, what they're doing. But it's also important for congregations to have the right perspective too so they can give constructive criticism where it's needed. So, I don't remember how to use this thing. So we have to maintain the right perspective on the pastoral office. That's my point this morning. The question is, how do we arrive at the right perspective? Well, it's right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. If you want to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to look at five verses in all before we're finished. Paul says in verse 1, Let a man so consider us. Now the us here is Paul and those like him, those that traveled with him, and those who were part of his mission group. And he's talking about God called men. Pastors, what you call them, pastors or missionaries in this case or whatever. Let a man so consider us, it says in the New King James. I think the Old King James says, give account of us or something like that. Let a man so consider us. So the word consider here means to stop and, and take, take note of. Think about it. Put it in the right perspective. Understand it in the right way. So how do we arrive at the right perspective? Well, there's two guidelines now that follow what he just said. It's kind of kind of hard to kind of dig it out, but it's here. Two guidelines that will help all of us, be we pastors or be we people that just here because you're part of the church. Not unimportant, by the way. I've always looked at my job as a pastor as being a part of what God's doing, not the main thing. Because a pastor doesn't accomplish a whole lot if there's nobody sitting out there listening. If there's not a church that is functioning as a body should. There's no unimportant person in God's church. None at all. So what are the guidelines for how we should consider a pastor? Well, the first thing I want you to notice the first guideline is this. You've got to manage your expectations. Manage your expectations. Now, when a new pastor comes in, there's usually a lot of excitement, joy, uh, high hopes. Especially if you've went a while without a pastor and, and thank the Lord for Pastor Paul and uh, what he did, but you all knew he wasn't permanent. So you've been without your pastor for a while. And it's good to have those expectations and those high hopes. But don't get them too high. Manage them. Because sometimes, well, our expectations deviate from the scriptural perspective. And that's what we want to just bring into focus here. And Paul does so with some very descriptive words that are very powerful. He says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. Now the word servant is not the normal word servant in the New Testament. 
It's not the normal Greek word that's translated servant or slave. It's a particular Greek word that was used to refer to the slaves who sat in the bottoms of those Roman ships out on the Mediterranean pulling on the oars. You've seen pictures of it. You had two banks of, of slaves. And I think it was two slaves to each oar. And they propelled that ship. I'm sure they had a sail too, but uh, when you're in battle in particular, as the Romans did, because they always had a Roman contingent of soldiers on that on that ship. And uh, it was a battleship. And you can't depend on the wind in a battle. And uh, you got just all these slaves down underneath pulling on those big, huge oars to propel the ship. So the Greek word here is a word that's usually explained this way or described or translated this way, although it says servant in the scriptures. It's a word which means literally, literally an under rower. Someone who's down under, no one sees them, no one maybe would even know what was propelling it if they just weren't smart enough to know there were men down there. Because on the outside, all you see is the oars propelling the ship. They were down under. They were under rowers. Now, slaves that were under rowers, they never determined where the ship was going. They, they never had any say in the direction. Someone else was piloting the ship, but they were providing the propulsion. Pastors ultimately have no say in what God's doing. It's their job to make sure what God wants done is followed and the people are motivated and God's people are prepared and challenged and led in that direction. Sometimes congregations misunderstand and think, well, the pastor wants us to do so-and-so. But the question you have to ask is, what does God want us to do? And what has God led the pastor to do? There's been times I've done things that were very unpopular. But in my mind, I felt sure this was what God wanted. It's not easy to be in that position. It's not easy for a congregation to trust a pastor with that when they don't have the perspective he does and the the, the leading he has. So he needs your prayers for God to lead him for he is your shepherd. Paul doesn't use the term shepherd here in this context. But we know that's the common analogy in the New Testament. So he's an under-rower. That's his role. The role in, in regard to his position and his function as a leader. He's an under-rower. But secondly, notice that he has a particular responsibility, which is preaching the word. Look at it with me again in verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants, under rowers of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, do not be thrown by the word mysteries. When you see the word mystery or mysteries in the New Testament, it just always refers to 
revelation from God, God gives at this point in time that he had not previously given. And what Paul is saying is, and now that he's in the New Testament times, and that we've moved past Pentecost, we're in the church age, there's a lot, there's a lot of new mysteries being revealed. Much of what we now look back on is not new to us because we've always had the New Testament. So what Paul is saying is that a pastor is to be a steward of the word. A steward of the word. Now a steward was another position in Greek society, in Roman society, that they had different terms for it, but it, it basically means a manager. Wealthy Greek families and Roman families often had a slave who managed the household, who managed all the assets of the, the uh, owner sometimes. You remember the, the story of Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house, that's exactly what he was doing. He was so good at it, Potiphar just kept giving him more and more responsibility. He was running Potiphar's business. He was running Potiphar's uh, investments and, and all that he had. Stewards were often highly intelligent and educated people who for what one or other reason or another conquered or got in financial trouble they ended up being slaves. Very capable. So, the pastor's responsibility is to be a steward of the word. He didn't write it. It doesn't originate with him. He just takes it and manages it in such a way that he can give it to people piece by piece and bit by bit so they can take it and feed on it and digest it and learn to be what they ought to be as God's children. In this day and age, there's many, many who have forgotten, but many, I'm talking about many pastors in many churches that have forgotten that they are stewards of the mysteries of God. And they become personalities who tickle ears. And that is a shame. Thank God that's never been the case in Fellowship Baptist Church from the time it began. And it will not be, not be the case going forward, I can guarantee you that. I want you to know I have full confidence in David. I know that his doctrine and what he believes is what I believe and what you believe. And that is a crucial question that you have to consider. And uh, the pulpit committee did a great job in that regard. By the way, they didn't just run out and get David and bring him in. Okay, They were diligent and looked high and low and far and wide, because you have to do that in their position. You have to consider, what does God want, not what do I want? And that whole process is overseen, and, and, and it is a part of God's sovereign work. And in the end, everybody has to realize that's, that's what God's done. I believe that David would be a fine pastor for you. And I know that you will give him all your support and encouragement. And that gives me great comfort. Because you, know, you step away from something you've done for 29 years, you're, you're walking away from your baby. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I, had a lot of, I had a lot of consternation about doing that just like you did, uh, going through it. 
A steward of the mystery. That's the primary responsibility. That's the thing that he has to do above all else. You can lop off a lot of other expectations, but you can't get past being a steward of the mysteries of God. Give him the freedom to put in the hours to do that effectively. The congregations do that by being so respectful. And I know you are. I don't know. This happens to me so many times as a pastor here. I would hear somebody was sick, somebody was had to go to the hospital, whatever, and I would feel so bad I didn't know about it. And I would say, I would go to them and say, well, why didn't you let me know? Like I would have loved to come and pray with you. And they'd say, oh, pastor, we just know you were really, really busy and it was a minor thing and we didn't want to bother you. That's not the way I looked at it, but so so thoughtful of my primary responsibility. Boy, that, that, that in itself is so appreciated. And I know that'll continue. But beyond his role and his responsibility, there is a requirement, and that is faithfulness. Verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. It's one thing to do it once or twice or do it for a while. It's another thing to do what you're supposed to do day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out. <clears throat> that means you're a steward of the mystery of God whether you feel like it on that particular Sunday morning or not. Whether you're spiritually <clears throat> on top of the world or sometimes on your knees saying, God, somehow help me get through this morning's press message, you know? You're just faithful. Because it all depends on God, not not you. I've shared this with Pastor Jim, I know, and maybe Pastor Travis and others. I probably shared it with David at some point along the line. But over the years, sometimes I'd get up and I'd preach a sermon and I'd think to myself, man, man, I really nailed that one. That's what's going on inside here. I, I, everything just went together and I was able to communicate it like a really happy about it. And I go back and stand at the door and people come out the door and they say, appreciate the sermon, Pastor. That was good. And I'm thinking, man, that didn't seem to have the same effect on them as it did me. <laughs> and I had other days when I get up and I, and I give my best effort and I think, that just fell flat. Nobody got anything out of that mess this morning. Nothing went right. I got this wrong. I messed up here. And I go back to the door and, I, and people come out. I say, Pastor, that was such a blessing to me. I'm like, what? That's because God, God is the author of what's going on in the, in that dynamic of someone being a, a steward of the mystery of God and others partaking of it. It's not, it's not the person, it's not the expertise in the bottom line, it's not any of that. It's what God takes over and does. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do our absolute best every time. Believe me. But there's going to be times you just don't. And you can trust God, but you can only trust God if you're being faithful. If, if, if a pastor gets up here and he hasn't done his job, he hasn't prepared himself, well, I'm not sure God's going to do a whole lot. 
There's an old story that comes out of, uh, I think it was way back in the days of Teddy Roosevelt, probably. It was an engineer by the name of George Washington Gothels, G-O-E-T-H-A-L-S. I think that's the way you pronounce it. Very well-known engineer. He was in charge of building the Panama Canal. And it wasn't that popular in the United States. A lot of people just thought it was a, a fool's errand. And, of course, a lot of people said, well, it just can't be done. A lot of people said, well, he'll never get it done. He'll never accomplish it. And it was a huge task in a very difficult environment. One day, George Washington had an associate come up to him and said, aren't you going to answer the critics? He was just, he just about had enough of it. He said, aren't you going to answer the critics? And Gothels looked at him and said, in time. And the associate said, how? Gothels looked at him and said, with the canal. That's all that mattered. Nothing, nothing else is going to prove anything except that he just would stick with it and accomplish the tasks. Being a pastor is not about some magnificent undertaking, some new ministry. All those things are important. It's not about some marvelous step in church growth. And then that'll probably happen. You know how many people are moving into this area? It's just unbelievable. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't have to somehow expand this building or build a bigger one at some point for long. <clears throat> But what really, really matters is just sticking with the basics, being a steward of the mysteries of God, and the congregation realizing that that is the one crucial thing. And how faithful you are to be here and to partake of the Word of God and to worship together, that is your crucial part in that process. So, Manage your expectations. <laughs> well, I went to my first church. I told you I was kind of taken back from everything. I, I had all kind of. I I had. I remember one time I had a lady come to me and she was concerned about a child with the grandparents, and they had very. They were very meager circumstances. Very meager. Very. They they were not well off at all. The grandfather was employed, but it was a very low paying job and. This this grandson was now living with him, and this lady, by looking at this youngster, thought the youngster wasn't as clean as he should be, and he and he wasn't he didn't look as healthy as he should be. And she came to me, and she wanted me to basically be a social worker and get involved and tell them that you know they were not doing their job, and and even go to the authorities and report it, and and. <clears throat> And I looked at the situation and I thought, they're doing everything they can do. And that boy's in a good place versus where he would have been with his mother. I refused to do that. She got so angry at me for not meeting her expectation that her and her husband left the church. Hated to see him go, but I couldn't help it. I couldn't, number one, do something I didn't believe I should be doing. Number two, I didn't even believe 
Her accusations were correct. But her expectations were so strong. And, and I, I know she really believed I should do it. Be careful about your expectations. Manage your expectations. Secondly, don't be too critical. Don't be... Now, the word here, the, the operative word here is too, not critical. I didn't say don't be critical. I said don't be too critical. And here's why. Sometimes your constructive criticism is exactly what the pastor needs to hear. Let's look at it, verse 3. But with me, Paul says, but with me. Paul uses himself as an example. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. What does Paul say? He doesn't say it's something that should never happen. He doesn't say it's something that's it's just awful and, and, and it, you know, it, you shouldn't ever criticize anybody. That's not what he says. But with me, he says it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. What does he mean? Well, I think that the idea or the concept here is this. He's saying always discount human judgment. Always discount human judgment in general because we're not God. We're not perfect. Listen to it. Consider it. But do not get yourself in a position to where every time you hear something, you grab a donkey and heft it on your shoulders. Discount human judgments. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 15, there's a very important verse here that's a good cross-reference. It says, but he who is spiritual judges all things. By the way, the word judges here in 1 Corinthians 2.15 is the exact form of the Greek word found right here in 1 Corinthians 4.3. It is a word in the Greek which means to evaluate, to consider. Paul says it's a small thing. He says it's a small thing. If I should be judged by you or by a human court, even if, even if I'm pulled before the authorities and judged, it's a small thing compared to God's judgment. <clears throat> human courts have to evaluate situations, actions, things people do. We as Christians, if we're spiritual, we're going to judge actions. We're going to judge what people do. We're going to judge what we can see. If we see someone and they're doing something wrong, we can see that. It's not wrong to say to a brother or sister, maybe you shouldn't do that. Or you really shouldn't do that. <laughs> so Paul is not at all saying never criticize. <clears throat> but he's saying don't overdo it. Because all human judgment, I don't care whose judgment it is, is suspect because we're not all-knowing. Now, let's go another step. He says in verse 3, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, 
I do not even judge myself. For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. So what Paul says is, is discount human judgment in general and then just discount your own self-evaluation in particular. Because we do not even have the facility to always judge ourselves rightly and evaluate ourselves rightly. Now pastors are prone to evaluate themselves much more harshly than even the congregation judges them. Pastors are prone to agonize over this is what didn't work, this didn't, the situation didn't resolve, uh, this prayer wasn't answered, uh, you know, I've, it's easy for a pastor to conclude they're failing. That's, that's just plain easy. You know, I call it the Monday morning syndrome, you know. Well, suddenly what didn't go very well, you know. Maybe I'm just a total failure. That's the temptation. David's been around long enough. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. <clears throat> when a pastor finally learns that's just human nature and discounts that and moves ahead in faithfulness, then they know what they're doing. But here's the thing. Paul says, I do not even judge myself. He, he means I don't, I don't come to a final conclusion about myself because I'm just a man. He says, for I know nothing against myself. Now here Paul is saying, I don't know anything that I'm doing wrong. I'm pretty confident in where I'm at and what I believe and what I'm doing. I know nothing against myself. Yet, he says, I'm not justified by this because he who judges me is God and I'm not God. And ultimately... There's not a single one of us that can conclude that God is going to reward us handsomely on the day of the judgment seat of Christ. We don't have that knowledge. Because it's easy for us to think that our judgment, even about ourselves, is, boy, that's just right. So we've got to be humble. And we've got to understand, when we're even when we're so sure about something, we could be wrong. Now, what can we do? Well, we have to have that same confidence Paul had. We have to evaluate ourselves. We have to say, well, what, what should I be doing? What can I do better? And what am I doing that's wrong? What's sin? What's not? We all have to do that. We have to judge ourselves. And as for other people, we have to judge them too, but we have to judge their actions. We can render a judgment on someone's actions. We know what's right and wrong from the Scripture. We cannot look inside of them and know their motives. We can't see their faults. We can't see their blind spots. None of that. That falls to God. Now look at the last verse here. Verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. Okay, I just told you judgment of things and actions was okay. And now verse 5 says don't judge anything. Put Matthew... uh, 7-1 7-1 up there. You all, you all familiar with this verse. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, sometimes when you're trying to be a person that offers constructive criticism, people look at you and say, well, who are you to judge? 
Don't you know? We're not supposed to judge. Judge not, you be not judged. That's not what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not what he said in 1 Corinthians 2.15. The spiritual man judgeth all things. What's going on here? It's a different word. It's the form of the word judgment, which in the Greek would be pronounced krino. That's what's in verse 5, krino. The words in verse 3, it's a different form of the word. It's anakrino. Anakrino means to render evaluation, consider, think what is right and wrong and what should be. The word in verse 5 means to render a verdict. Final. No, Paul says that's what goes to God. That's what Matthew 7, 1 is talking about. Don't render a verdict on someone's life. Now, I know you've heard this, and I've heard it for years. There'll be someone in the congregation that, well, their life isn't what it should be, and it's kind of known to everybody. And uh, everybody's just kind of commiserating over it. And then you'll begin to hear people say, well, I just don't think old brother so-and-so is saved. Don't ever say that. You do not have the right to say that. What you can say is, I don't think brother so-and-so is acting like he's saved. (laughs) That's legitimate. I don't think a Christian should do that. I don't think someone uh, who knows the Lord should be involved in this, that's a legitimate anacrino judgment. You're judging something, an occurrence, an act. But when you say, I just don't believe old brother so-and-so is saved, now you're rendering a verdict. It's not yours to render. That's Matthew 7.1. I have to leave early, so I've got to get out of here early so I can get a bite to eat, right? This is not going to be a, I guess it's been longer than I thought, though. Uh, but I'm going to stop there because I've made the point. It's simply this. Manage your expectations and don't be too critical. It comes down to being humble, considerate, thoughtful, trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, all of that. And it boils down to being a body of Christ. A body of Christ that cares about each other. <clears throat> cares about, cares about it when people do that which is wrong. Cares about them when they're discouraged. They need encouragement. All the rest.